of this, indications of it, uh, resonate, resonating vibrations, I guess you could say, all the way back to when you look at the different parties within Judaism in the first century. Four basic parties, only two of which you read mostly, mostly about in, in the New Testament, but there were actually four at the time. You get, you get a sense of the, the question, the confusion regarding how are God's people to engage with the world? What is our stance to be towards the rest of the world? So you have these parties. Parties, one, would be the Sadducees. You hear them mentioned a few times in the New Testament. Th their posture is, you could say, is that of accommodation. Just let's go with the flow, whatever it takes to make it work. That's what we're going to do. Uh, on the completely other end of the spectrum were the zealots, who were not just um, clamoring for resistance, but actually would plot violent um, tactics to overthrow the civil authorities, the Romans, uh, at the time. Then you have the Pharisees, the Pharisees who are leaning into tradition. Right? And that's what they're going to abide by to, in terms of how they're going to engage and not engage with the world. And then you have folks who said, I, you're all crazy. I'm done with the whole thing. The Essenes, complete, utter withdrawal out into the wilderness. The wilderness down there by the Dead Sea. You can see, really, reverberations, echoes of all of these types of responses that you, I just listed in the first century all through history. Different ways, different flavorings in which they're expressed. You can see them today. Even in the landscape of the church today, there are those impulses. You see all those impulses still today in one way, shape, or form. Certainly not, you know, exact tit for tat, but certainly you can see signs of them. So that raises the question, though. What is our posture to be? How are we as God's people to be engaged with the world around us? Like the Sadducees said, like the Pharisees said, like the Zealots said, like the Essenes said, or is it none of them? and perhaps something completely different. We are pressing in this morning into the fourth of our series of messages moving through our new vision statement. So I'm going to walk you through uh, what's going to, it's there on the screen. I'm going to just kind of explain those of you who've been here before, you know where this is going. Those of you who haven't been here before, let me just kind of walk you through in terms of the, the phrasing of this, this statement. So it begins with the whole vision statement on the website, on the Facebook page, in the newsletter, all the ways you can find this. It's all boiled down to this one sentence. Is that the next slide maybe? Um, Christ Presbyterian Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Christ Presbyterian Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And then that slide that was just up there is where we're heading next. Uh, and that's unpacked in a series of phrases. We are a covenant family. We did that one a few weeks ago. Being transformed to the likeness of Christ, rejoicing in and displaying his truth, goodness, and grace, growing in love, service, and relationship to God and our community for the glory of God and his kingdom, present and eternal. Now, you'll notice in every one of those, well, quite a few of those lines in, in the basic phrasings, you have these words in bold. And in every one of those places where you have something in bold, that's unpacked later in, in the statement. So in this case, we're looking at growing in love, service, and relationship to God and our community. The key word being community there. And uh, that, if you unpack that, you go a little bit further down in, in the slides, in the, uh, the statement. In addition to being a covenant community, we seek the welfare of the city and the world in which God has placed us. 
We, in addition to being a covenant community, we seek the welfare of the city and the world in which God has placed us. And then under that, we have a series of bullet points. Okay? And again, this is all in this, in this statement. The bullet points unpacking that, that last thing I just read. And it goes like this. We shall share the gospel with our community, both near and far, by our word and action. We will seek to uphold that which is good and beautiful. We will seek to restore that which is broken. We will shelter the brokenhearted. We will enable and equip others to use their gifts fully for kingdom work. We will seek to be good neighbors and bring light to the world around us. We will care for the outcast and downtrodden. We will partner with other congregations in our community, both near and far. Now, as I've done the last few weeks, at this point, uh, after reading all of that, we then ask a question. Is that defensible? Is that, do you see that? And if so, how in the Scriptures? How does God speak into these matters in the Scriptures? And if He does, how so? So, with that in mind, we're going to turn to a text and spend a little bit of time there. Jeremiah 29. All right? So Jeremiah is one of the major prophets, and that's not, not because he was a big guy. We have no idea what he looked like. But just because what he wrote was long, and so when, you, he, when the prophets write long amounts of the material, we call them major prophets. So that's why like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah are our major prophets. So this is in the, the Old Testament. This is uh, after the Psalms, kind of that rough halfway point there. You hit a few of the wisdom books, and then you hit Isaiah, and then you hit Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations comes after that. Ezekiel comes after that. Daniel comes after that. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29 is where we are. And it's an interesting part within the flow of the book of Jeremiah because this is not a part of the, the prophecies that you see here or the judgment oracles that you read here. This is actually a letter. That's right. We're, getting, we're opening somebody's mail this morning. Okay. So this is Jeremiah 29 verses 1 through 14. Hear now God's word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. 
I will see, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to read this letter. Uh, there was a point in, in history in which this letter was put in the hands of these people by this uh, propped-up king there in Jerusalem. And it was delivered over many, 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 many miles to a group of folks who had been ripped away from their home and were wondering, what now? How are we to live in this place? Is God even there? Does he care? And if so, what does it mean for us and how are we to live in this place, this letter to exiles? We ask that you would help us to understand what this means for us and uh, not just understand it, but to lean into it and to live it out, to look to you, so not to be leaning into one another or certainly not ourselves, but to be looking and leaning into you, the only, the only safe place we have. I pray in your name. Amen. So here's the axiom, simple axiom, okay? We need to know where we are so as to know how to live. We need to know where we are so as to know how to live. Make sense? Here's a thought experiment. Let's say you, you're kidnapped and taken away to a place far away and you're blindfolded and you have no idea where they're taking you and why and, and what's in store for you. And, you know, here's some things you might want to know. You might want to find out if you possibly can on the way before you're dropped out there. might be some questions about terrain. You know, is this a desert they're taking you? Is it the Arctic? Is it the tropics? It might have some impact, you know, on how you, you know, the, the bags that you pack and things that you pull out of the plane as they're throwing you in there. Okay, what about um, soil conditions? What about plant life? What about animals? What's there? Are there people there? Oh, that's a question. And if so, what are they like? What, what, are, what is this place like to which I am being sent, to which I'm being thrust? You need to know where you are in order to know how to live. Let me come at it from another angle now. So I'm gonna, a, a, um, a model. It's helpful to have a model, a grid, um, uh, the right lens to understand where you are so you know how to live. Now, this is a model that's not original to me, but I've ha found it to be tremendously helpful. And the idea is simply this, to, take, to consider the three of the great cities of the Old Testament era. To, to look at three of the great cities of the Old Testament era and ask, which one of those is my cultural context most like? You, you, with me? So here, here are the three. Not just any three, but three in particular. So here are the three. Is it Jerusalem, where believer and unbeliever alike acknowledge the reality, the existence of the God of Abraham, and that his law, his word, is the authority over our lives? Do we live in Jerusalem? No, we do not. Okay? Check. Rule that one off. How about Samaria? Could it be Samaria? where the God of Israel is acknowledged to some degree, but after many years of practice and belief being tainted by rubbing up against 
the shoulders and the lifestyles of the peoples around that those beliefs and practices are no longer what they were really meant and supposed to be, but there's still kind of a shared understanding, you understand, of who this God is and general agreement on that score. Do we live in Samaria? No, we do not. Last, Babylon, where there are a wide variety of gods, beliefs, practices, values, all competing with one another, that our way of seeing, our worldview, is deemed as understood to be, in this context, but one option of many in the great marketplace of ideas. Do we live in Babylon? I didn't ask if you want to live in Babylon. I'm asking, do we live in Babylon? And the answer to that question is yes. So here's what's interesting. We have a letter. We have a letter sent by, the, by God through the prophet of God to the people of God as they're living in exile in Babylon. And what do we learn in that letter? A bit more in terms of where we are, yeah, but also how to live who God is and how he intends for us to live, even in this place, even as a people, if you will, in exile. What do we learn? What do we learn here? We learn that God is with us, even in Babylon. God is with his people. Then, now, in Babylon. And he calls us to walk in his ways, to look to him, to lean upon him, to heed his commands, to seek his face, to walk in his ways. God is with us, wherever we are, in Babylon as people in exile. God is with us, and he calls us to walk in his ways. Now, what then might those ways be? How might we understand that? Well, here in this letter, you can see at least three things. It's on the outline. If you brought it with you, the bulletin, these are the three points. These three ways of understanding our stance our posture, our response to the world around us and what it means to live in this place. One would be in faithfulness. A second thing would be engagement. And a third would be assurance. So those, those three things, faithfulness, engagement, and assurance. That's where we're going over the next few minutes. So first, faithfulness. Look with me again at verses 29, excuse me, chapter 29, verses uh, 5 through 6. Uh, this very simple way of understanding what, what are we to be, what are we to do. Verses 5 through 6, how, how ordinary this is. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. As one commentator I was reading this past week puts it, look, look, you here you see the refugees becoming residents. The refugees become residents. And they, they, they take up a life, a life in exile, of continuing in the ordinary. Now that's completely counter to the counsel of the false prophets. The false prophets said, no, 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 no. This is just an interruption. This is just an interruption. You don't need to... This time, this place doesn't matter. Just build... Don't make a home here. Put up a tent here. 
Don't invest here. Don't get to know the people here. It doesn't matter. This place, this time, these people, it doesn't matter. This is just an interruption. Don't invest here. This is the message of the false prophets, of whom the Lord says they're liars in my name. Rather, the message of the true prophet of Jeremiah is what? Build and live there. Plant and eat there. Uh, take wives, husbands, give wives, husbands, settle in. Make your home. Settle down, settle in, make your home there. The ordinary life continues. The ordinary life continues without a need to fixate on the spectacular. That is to say, don't just wait around. Don't just wait around with your bags packed thinking that somebody's coming to take me home. Somebody's going to come and a big thing, a big thing's going to happen and we're going to be pulled out of this. You know, some big victory. Yeah, that's right. Truly, it is true. that, that and, and the Lord does say Babylon's going to get theirs. A day is coming. But in the meantime, continue in the ordinary. Stop fixating on some spectacular thing. Don't just sit waiting around looking for the big change. But rather, work. Don't just wait around. Work and rest. Work and rest in the Lord's care for you. In the ordinary things of life. The or just ordinary faithfulness is what's being called for. It's part of what life in exile is. The ordinary of life. The ordinary faithfulness. The ebb and the flow of life. What does life in exile mean? A lot of ordinary things is what we see here. They need to be continued and pressed into. So some of you know that uh, Sarah and I went to the UK last summer. And we got to see a lot of things, experience a lot of things on this Inklings Abroad trip. And some, we spent a little bit of time towards the end of the trip in, in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland. And I'm going to read you an account here, just a description of something that we saw. I'm just going to read it because I found it to be fairly thorough, maybe better so than, than I would be able to do just off the cuff. Edinburgh, Scotland, famous for the story of a dog and his owner that expressed devotion and tenacity in equal measure. The story began in 1850 when John Gray came to the city to be a gardener. Unable to find work, he joined the police force as a night watchman. To keep him company through the long nights, he would take his small sky terrier named Bobby with him on his rounds. They became part of the living landscape of the city night after night for years. John later contracted tuberculosis and died in the winter of 1858. He was buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard. What happened next became legend in the city. Bobby, the Sky Terrier, would not leave his master's grave. Except for accepting midday meals from the kind people in the area, Bobby stayed there day and night with his master. The caretaker tried on many occasions to evict the dog, but to no avail. Finally, he provided the little dog with a shelter by the grave. When the city passed an ordinance that all unlicensed dogs would be destroyed, the Lord Provost of Edinburgh, William Chambers, purchased a license for Bobby and had a collar engraved for the little dog. Until his death 14 years later, the citizens cared for Bobby while he guarded his master's body. This is where it comes to the summer of 2022 and the two of us. If you walk to Greyfriars at Kirkyard today, you can't miss the statue that stands across the street. The sculpture of Bobby with these words inscribed on the base. Greyfriars Bobby died 14 January 1872, age 16 years, 
Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson for us all. The ordinary. That's where I'm going with. That's why I'm telling you this story. The ordinary of a dog just staying. Transpose that to us and what this might mean for us. Why? I, I've gotten to thinking about this over the last several days. Why are we so preoccupied with the extraordinary, with the flashy? Why do we think it has to be that to be of any good? Why do we think it always has to be so big to be of any value, so bright and shiny? What's at the root of our discontentment? I think some of it has to do with the fact that, that, that honestly, when pushed, we have to admit, we're not really sure if God sees us where we are and as we are and takes notice of us in any way. And so we just feel like we've got to do more, be more, flashier, bigger, better. But to that lie, we need to ask some questions, just, just a couple of like, just scenarios. So imagine the, the, the stay-at-home mom changing a dozen diapers in one day. And keep this in mind. Her role in the grander scheme of things is a heck of a lot bigger than some activist spouting his or her wisdom on a talk show. The student applying his or herself to their books, trying to discern their calling, their gifting, their interests in this life is a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more significance, has a whole lot more significance than some celebrity who's lighting up social media. It's in the ordinary. Ordinary faithfulness. That's what the Lord is calling us to. He is with us in Babylon. We don't need anything else. He is with us in Babylon. Calls us to walk in his ways. Calls us to walk in ordinary faithfulness. It's part of what we see here in this letter. What it means to live in exile. But there's some, something else here, and that is to, to live a life of engagement, a posture of engagement in, with and in the world around us as, as well. And we see this in verses 7 through 9. So picking up where we left off. So do this, do this, do this, verses 5 through 6. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So uh, the refugees become residents, the mourners become missionaries. The mourners become missionaries. Why are they there? Why are we here? Why were they there? Why are we here? For the good of the community. For the good of the people around us. What is the calling? What does God make clear through this letter, through Jeremiah, to the exiles there in Babylon? What are they to do? To seek and to pray. To seek, the, the, the word meaning to pursue to care for, to work for, to pray. To pray, yeah, and not just 
in Babylon, but note what the Lord says. For Babylon. So to seek and to pray for Babylon. For what for Babylon? For their welfare. The word is actually, the Hebrew is shalom. Now you may have heard of that from time to time if you're hearing anything about uh, messages from the Old Testament. Shalom meaning prosperity. Shalom meaning their well-being. Shalom meaning peace. Shalom, it's, it's a picture of Eden, pre-fall, the way things are meant to be, the way they're supposed to be. So working, seeking, praying for the shalom of our community, of our neighbors, of the people around us, and the larger world in which we live. We are to be seeking, this is the Lord's own word to his people in exile, we are to be seeking and praying for the shalom of the people around us, even though, or maybe especially when, we're in Babylon. So for, we're here for the good of our community. But you know that it's, it's not just that the Lord's, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, it's, it's only that that I have in mind. I just, I don't have just their good in mind. That's why I'm telling you to do this. I have your good in mind. That's why I'm telling you to do this. And he says that as well there in the last part of verse 7. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare, right? That welfare being shalom. There's that word again. So, yes, on the one hand, I know I made you this. I know I made you distinct. I made you holy. I made you separate. It's what all the holiness codes were about and the priests and the tabernacle and the temple and all the stuff. Yes, I know that. I'm rifting here on what God's saying. I know you're a holy people. I know you're supposed to be distinct and separate. Got it. At the same time, even as you are to be distinct from the people around you, you must know you are one with the people around you. In my eyes and how I'm going to deal with Babylon, you're linked to them. You're united to them. Your, future, your present is tied to them. Your future is tied to them. So you need to be seeking. You need to be praying for the shalom of the community of which you are a part. Integrally. Integrally a part. In fact, you go so far, flip it. If you refuse to seek for and pray for the shalom of the community in which you find yourself, you are cutting yourself off from shalom yourself. Right? That's the implication of what the Lord is saying here to his, his people. He is calling us to a posture of engagement. It's what it means to live faithfully in, in, in the time of exile. It's what it means to live a life pleasing to him. It's, it, Jesus speaks of this in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us to be salt and light. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, we need to be salt. But, and yes, right, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but what if the salt loses its saltiness? That's right, it's no good for anybody except to be thrown away. But what else does he say? I mean, the salt's got to get out there. The salt doesn't do any good to anyone if, it's, if it loses its saltiness, but it also doesn't do any good to anyone if it stays in the shaker. So we are to be salt. We are to be light. Jesus pushes that, that metaphor further in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 5. And the, he says that the light doesn't do any good to anyone if you put it under a basket. It's not fulfilling its purpose, its function. If it's hidden, lift that basket, put it up on the hill. Let it be a light to the peoples. We're to be salt and light. So this raises some 
stinging questions, I, I'm afraid. Are we, are we seeking for and praying for the shalom of our community, of our neighbor, of the world around us? Are we seeking for this? Are we praying for this? Or do we, have we adopted the very posture of Babylon, of the larger world around us, suspiciously, cynically looking at everyone as potential enemies? Oh, but wait a minute. Even if you adopt that posture, Jesus says what? You are to love your enemy and do good to them and to pray for them. Building on that, Paul says in Ephesians 6 that, oh, by the way, they're not your enemy. Satan is your enemy. And ultimately, there is no war between you, spiritually speaking. There is no war between you and your neighbor. It's a battle that is fought in the heavenlies. So then he tells us to take up spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6. So... Are we? Are we seeking for and praying for the shalom of our neighbor? Could it be that we have lost sight of that calling and the significance of it? There, there's a, another question that's, that's worth asking at this point, and that is, what's behind our tendency to withdraw? What's behind that? What's behind the tendency, the, 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 the temptation we often feel towards keeping the salt in the shaker or the light under the bushel? Why is it we tend towards pulling back instead of pressing in? Could it be that we are actually at times hiding behind the call to holiness could it be that at times we are hiding behind a professed desire to protect our children, but in actuality what's really there is fear and not faithfulness, faithlessness. What's going on there in our hearts? that's causing, driving that kind of posture. The Lord is with us here in Babylon. He calls us to walk in his ways. And that calls for a posture of faithfulness and a posture of engagement. Also, one last thing, and that is assurance. And I'm going to need to kind of speed through this one. Uh, this is in verses 10 through 14. Verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So here you have not just refugees becoming residents and mourners becoming missionaries, but victims becoming visionaries. Victims becoming visionaries. You think in terms of the reality, the Lord making clear the reality of his plans. I have plans for you. 
despite all appearances, I have plans for you. You know, think of what the optics were for the exiles in Babylon. What did it look like? What did it feel like that he had deserted them? That he'd been defeated by all the pagan gods somehow. That's what it looked like. That's what it felt like. But in actuality, he's been on the throne the whole time. Ruling in and through all this for his good, good, good purposes. You can hear the echoes of his ancient covenant promises even in what we read from verses 11, excuse me, 10 through 14. I am your God. You hear that in what he says. The assurance that he gives. I am your God. I will be with you. I will draw you to myself. Six times, just in the ESV, literally, it says, I will. You could actually expand it when you really pay attention to the verbs. So probably more like eight or ten. I will, the number of things that the Lord says he's going to do on our behalf, out of mercy and love for us, for us, his people. The reality of his plans he's making very clear. At the same time, there's a bit of mystery here, too. There's some head scratching here. I don't know if you picked up on this. But, but think with me for just a second. So yes, his per he has purposes, he has plans, but here's the question. What path might those plans and purposes take? What path might those plans and purposes take? Again, where is the address label on this letter? Babylon. You're in exile. In short order, the city of Jerusalem and the temple is going to be left to nothing but a smoking pile of rubble. What path will his good purposes take? How did they get there? Well, you can say at one level, you can go with verse 1. I mean, it's always good to pay attention to the text, right? It says, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem. That's true. Nebuchadnezzar did it. That's right. That's who's behind this. In the words of Lee Corso, not so fast, my friends. There's another answer here beyond just what this pagan king and his purposes were. So, for instance, in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent, have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Or skipping down to verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Or skipping down to verse 14, lest we miss the point. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Oh my goodness, the paths that his purposes may take. His good purposes may take take. I mean, who is he after all? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks a rather, whew, a big question. I mean, they're all big, but this is a really big question. What is God? How would you like to be given that assignment to answer that question? Well, they did. They came with an answer. What is God? It's the uh, fourth question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite and eternal, in his uh, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's who God is. Now, here's what's important to know. All that he does is always flowing from who he is. All that he does is always flowing from all that he is. 
And who is he? Well, we just had that reminder there. We have such assurance, such assurance as a people in exile. And those promises, those assurances are meant to be something to carry us through the hard times. For us to hold on to as we go through rough waters. Never meant to carry us over them, to avoid them, around them, but always through them, in the midst of them. That's why we have the assurances. That's why we have these promises, to enable us to live lives of ordinary faithfulness in Babylon, in order to enable us to live lives of, of engagement, even while in exile. How do we maintain such a posture of assurance? How do we maintain such a posture of hope when the messages around us, when the, when the optics around us are always bombarding us with just the complete opposite? How do we maintain such hope? How do we maintain such assurance? How do we maintain, can I just put it this way, our, our sanity? By continually drowning out those, those messages and those optics with truth. Daily abiding with Jesus. Walking with him. Carving. And sometimes that's exactly what it takes. Carving out time daily to spend with him. That our sanity in the midst of exile would be sustained. And that hope, the fire of hope, would be maintained. He's with us. He's with us in exile. He's with us in Babylon. He calls us to walk in his, in his ways. Oh, we need to stop there. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity as we were sort of half-jokingly saying earlier to, to read someone else's mail, but really it's our mail. This has been your people's mail ever since it was originally penned. This is what it means to serve you, to live before you, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourself. Oh, Jesus, would you help us to know where we are so we can know how to live? Would you help us not to be pining for Jerusalem and Samaria to put down the roots where we are, to not pay heed to the false prophets, but to listen to the one true prophet? Would you give us the uh, assurance that this is worth doing? That's what you're telling us to do. It must be worth doing. Would you guide us in the steps ahead? Would you please guide our vision team? Would you please guide our, our session? Would you please guide our ministry teams as all these things begin over slowly but surely over time to take shape? What all this means for us, but for all of us, whatever even just tomorrow has, every one of us, would you help us to know that you are with us? That you are with us. And pray in your name. Amen.